the monroe system in the british territories in the south there was a similar move away from the idea of permanent settlement the new system that was devised came to be known as the road war or road warri it was tried on a small scale by captain alexander raiding some of the areas that were taken over by the company after the wars with the tipu sultan subsequently developed by thomas munro this system was gradually extended all over south india raid and munro left raid and munro felt that in the south there were no traditional zamindars in the settlement they argued had to be made directly with the cultivators or ryots who had titled who had tilled the land for generations their fields had to be carefully and separately surveyed before the revenue assessment was made munro thought that the british should act as paternal father figure protecting the ryots under their charge activity imagine that you are a company representative sending a report back to england about the conditions in rural areas under company rule who would you write all was not well with a few years after the new system were imposed it was clear that all was not well with them driven by the desire to increase the income from land revenue officials fixed too high air revenue demand peasants were unable to pay riots fled the countryside and villages became deserted in many regions optimistic officials had imagined that the new systems would transform the peasants into rich enterprising farmers but this did not happen crops for europe the british also realized that the countryside would not only yield revenue it could also grow the crops that europe required by the late 18th century the company was trying its best to expand the cultivation of opium and indigo in the century and a half that followed the british persuaded or forced cultivators in various parts of india to produce other crops jute in bengal tea in assam sugarcane in the united provinces now uttar pradesh wheat in punjab cotton in maharashtra and punjab rice in madras how was this done the british used a variety of methods to expand the cultivation of crops that they needed <clears throat> let us take a closer look at the story of one such crop one such method of production figure 5 a kalamkari print 20th century india figure 6 a morris cotton print late 19th century england does color have a history figure 5 and 6 are two Im- images of cotton prints 
the image on the left figure 5 shows a kalamkari print created by weavers of andhra pradesh in india on the right is a floral cotton print designed and produced by william morris a famous poet and artist of 19th century britain there is one thing common in the two prints both use a rich blue color commonly called indigo do you know how this color was produced the blue that you see in these prints was produced from a plant called indigo it is likely that the blue dye used in a morris prints in 19th century britain was manufactured from indigo plants cultivated in india for india was the biggest supplier of indigo in the world at that time by the demand for indian indigo the indigo plant grows primarily in the tropics by the 13th century indian indigo was being used by cloth manufacturers in italy france and britain to dye cloth however only small amounts of indian indigo reached the european market and its price was very high european cloth manufacturers therefore had to depend on another plant called wool to make violet and blue dyes being a plant of the temperate zones wool was more easily available in europe it was grown in northern italy southern france and in parts of germany and britain worried by the competition from indigo wool producers in europe pressurized their government to ban the import of indigo cloth dyers however preferred indigo as a dye indigo produced a rich blue color whereas the dye from wool was pale and dull by the 17th century european cloth producers persuaded their governments to relax the ban on indigo import the french began cultivating indigo in saint dominique in the caribbean islands the portuguese in brazil the english in jamaica and the spanish in venezuela indigo plantations also came up in many parts of the north america by the end of the 18th century the demand for indian indigo grew further britain began to industrialize and its cotton production expanded dramatically creating an enormous new demand for cloth dyes while the demand for indigo increased its existing supplies from the west indies and america collapsed for a variety of reasons between 1783 and 1789 the production of indigo in the world fell by half cloth dyers in britain now desperately looked for new sources of indigo supply from where could this indigo be produced plantation a large farm operated by a planter employing various forms of forced labor plantations are associated with the production of coffee sugarcane tobacco tea and cotton britain tends to india 
faced with rising demand for indigo in Europe. The company in India looked for ways to expand the area under indigo cultivation. Figure 7. The slave revolt in St. Dominic, August 1791, painting by January Suchodolsky. In the 18th century, French planters produced indigo and sugar in the French colony of St. Dominic in the Caribbean islands. The African slaves who worked on the plantations rose in rebellion in 1791, burning the plantations and killing the rich planters. In 1792, France abolished slavery in the French colonies. These events led to the collapse of the indigo plantations on the Caribbean islands. Slave, a person who is owned by someone else, the slave owner. A slave has no freedom and is compelled to work for the master. From the last decades of the 19th century, indigo cultivation in Bengal expanded rapidly. The Bengal indigo came to dominate the world market. In 1788, only about 30% of the indigo imported into Britain was from India. By 1810, the proportion had gone up to 95%. As the indigo trade grew, commercial agents and officials of the company began investing in indigo production. Over the years, many company officials left their jobs to look after their indigo business. Attracted by the prospect of high profits, numerous Scotsmen and Englishmen came to India and became planters. Those who had no money to produce indigo could get loans from the company and the banks that were coming up at the time. How was indigo cultivated? There were two main systems of indigo cultivation, niche and riote. Within the system of niche cultivation, the planter produced indigo in lands that he directly controlled. He either bought the land or rendered it from other zamindas and produced indigo by directly employing hired laborers. The problem with niche cultivation. The planters found it difficult to expand the area under niche cultivation. Indigo could be cultivated only on fertile lands and these were all already densely populated. Only small plots scattered over the landscape could be acquired. Planters needed large areas in compact blocks to cultivate indigo in plantations. Where could they get such land from? They attempted to lease in the land around the indigo factory and evict the peasants from the area. But this always led to conflicts and tension. Nor was labor easy to mobilize. A large plantation required a vast number of hands to operate, and, and labor was needed precisely at a time 
when peasants were usually busy with their rice cultivation. Niche cultivation on a large scale also required many plows and bullocks. One beaker of indigo cultivation required two plows. Bigger, a unit of measurement of land before British rule, the size of the, this area varied. In Bengal, the British standardized it into about one third of an acre. This meant that a planter with 1,000 biggers would need 2,000 plows. Investing on purchase and the maintenance of plows was a big problem. Nor could suppliers be easily caught from the presence since their plows and bullocks were busy on their rice fields. Again, exactly at the time that the indigo planters needed them. Till the late 19th century, planters were therefore reluctant to expand the area under niche cultivation. Less than 25% of the land producing indigo was under this system. The rest was under the alternate mode of cultivation, the roti system, indigo on the land of riots. Under the riot system, the planters forced the riots to sign a contract, an agreement, Saturn. At times, they pressurized the village headmen to sign the contract on behalf of the riots. Those who signed the contract got cash advances from the planters at low rates of interest to produce indigo. But the loan committed to the riot to cultivating indigo owned at least 25% of the area under his holding. The planter provided the seed and the drill while the cultivators prepared the soil sowed the seed and looked after the crop. Figure 8 Workers harvesting indigo in early 19th century. Bengal from Colesworthy Grant, a rural life in Bengal, 1860. In India, the indigo plant was cut mostly by men. Figure 9 The indigo plant being brought from the field to the factory. How was indigo produced? Figure number 10 An indigo factory located near indigo fields, painting by William Simpson, 1863. The indigo villages were usually around indigo factories owned by planters. After harvest, the indigo plant was taken to the wards in the indigo factory. Three or four whites were needed to manufacture the dye. Each white had a separate function. The leaves stripped off the indigo plant were first soaked in warm water in a vat known as the fermenting or steeper vat for several hours. When the plants fermented, the liquid began to boil and bubble. Now the rotten leaves were taken out and 
the liquid drained into another vat that was placed just below the first vat. In the second vat, known as the beta vat, the solution was continuously stirred and beaten with the paddles. When the liquid gradually turned green and then blue, lime water was added to the watch. Gradually the indigo separated out in flakes. A muddy sediment settled at the bottom of the watch and a clear liquid rose to the surface. The liquid was drained off and the sediment, the indigo pulp, transferred to another watch known as the settling vat and then processed, pressed and dried for sale. Figure 11. Women usually carried the indigo plant to the vats. Figure 12. The vat with vat beater, the indigo worker. Here is standing with the body that was used to stir the solution in the watch. These workers had to remain in waste deep water force over 8 hours to beat the indigo solution. Watch a fermenting or storage vessel. Figure number 13. The indigo is already for sale. Here you can see the last stage of the production. Workers stamping and cutting the indigo pulp that has been pressed and molded. In the background you can see a worker carrying away the blocks of the blocks for drying. When the crop was delivered to the planter after the harvest, a new loan was given to the riots and the cycle started all over again. Peasants who were initially tempted by the loans soon realized how harsh the system was. The price they got for the indigo they produced was very low and the cycle of loans never ended. There were other problems too. The planters usually invest, insisted that indigo be cultivated on the best soil in which peasants preferred to cultivate rice. Indigo moreover had deep roots and it's, it exhausted the soil rapidly. After an indigo harvest, the land could not be sown with rice. The Blue Rebellion and After In March 1859, thousands of riots in Bengali refused to grow indigo. As the rebellion spread, riots refused to pay rents to the planters and attacked indigo factories armed with the swords and spears, bows and arrows. Women with the sword, women turned up to fight with pots, pans and kitchen implements. Those who worked for the planters were socially boycotted and the gomastas, these agents of planters who came to collect rent were beaten up. Riots 
swore they would no longer take advances to sow indigo nor be bullied by the planters latians the lati building strong men maintained by the planters why did the indigo peasants decide that they would no longer remain silent what gave them the power to rebel clearly the indigo system was intensely oppressive but those who are oppressed do not always rise up in rebellion they do so only at times in 1859 the indigo warriors felt that they had the support of the local samindars and village headmen in their rebellion against the planters in many villages headmen who had been forced to sign indigo contracts mobilized the indigo peasants and fought pitched battles with the latians in other places even the zamindar went around villages urging the riots to resist the planters the zamindars were unhappy with the increasing power of the planters and angry at being forced by the planters to give them land on long leases the indigo peasants also imagined that the british government would support them in their struggle against their planters After the revolt of 1857 the british government was particularly worried about the possibility of another popular rebellion when the news spread of a simmering revolt in the indigo districts the lieutenant governor told the region in the winter of 1859 the riots saw the tour that as a sign of government sympathy for their plight when in barasat the magistrate ashley eden issued a notice stating that riots would not be compelled to accept indigo contracts word went around that Queen Victoria had declared that indigo need not be sown. Eden was trying to placate the peasants and control an explosive situation, but his action was read as support for the rebellion. As the rebellion spread, intellectuals from Calcutta rushed to the indigo districts. They wrote of the misery of the riots. the tyranny of the planters and the horrors of the indigo system worried by the rebellion the government brought in the military to protect the planters from assault and set up the indigo commission to inquire into the system of indigo production the commission held the planters guilty and criticized them for the coercive methods they used with indigo cultivators 
it declared that indigo production was not profitable for riots the commission asked the riots to fulfill their existing contracts but also told them that they could refuse to produce indigo in future source 2 a song from an indigo producing village in moments of struggle people often sing songs to inspire each other and to build a sense of collective unity such songs give us a glimpse of their feelings during the indigo rebellion many such songs could be heard in the villages of lower bengal here is one such song the long lath is filled by the planter of molahati now lie in a cluster the babus of kolkata have sailed down to see the great fight this time the riots are already they will no longer be beaten in silence they will no longer give up their life without fighting the lathians source 3 i would rather beg than so indigo hachi mulla the indigo cultivator of chandapur tana hadi was interviewed by the members of the indigo commission on tuesday 5th june 1860 This is that he said in answer to some of the questions. W. Satin Clark, President of the Indigo Commission, are you now willing to sow indigo? And if not, on what fresh terms would you be willing to do it? Hadji Mullah, I am not willing to sow, and I don't know that any fresh terms would satisfy me. Mr. Singh, would you not be willing to sow at a rupee a bundle? Hadji Mullah, no, I would not. Rather than sow indigo, I will go to another country. I would rather beg than sow indigo. Indigo Commission Report, Volume 11, Minutes of Evidence, page 67. Activity. Imagine you are a witness giving evidence before the Indigo Commission. W.S. Satan Carr asks you, on what condition will rewards grow indigo? What will your answer be? After the revolt, Indigo production collapsed in Bengal, but the planters now shifted their operation to Bihar. With the discovery of synthetic dyes in the late 19th century, their business was severely affected, but yet they managed to expand production. When Mahatma Gandhi returned from South Africa, a peasant from Bihar persuaded him to visit Chambaran and see the plight of the indigo cultivators there. Mahatma Gandhi's visit in 1917 marked the beginning of the Chambaran movement against the indigo planters.
elsewhere. Indigo making in the West Indies In the early 18th century, a French missionary, Jean-Baptiste Labatt, traveled to the Caribbean islands and wrote extensively about the region. Published in one of his books, this image shows all the stages of indigo production in the French slave plantations of the region. You can see the slave workers putting this indigo plant into the settler white on the left and the worker is turning the liquid with a mechanical turner in a white second from right. Two, or two workers are carrying the indigo pulp hung up in the bags to be dried. In the foreground, two others are mixing the indigo pulp to put into molds. The planter is at the center of the picture, standing on this high ground, supervising the slave workers. Let's record much the following route. Mahal Nage Riot, Village Peasant Cultivation on Riot's Lunch, Cultivation on Planters on Lunch. Let's imagine, imagine a conversation between a planter and a peasant who is being forced to grow indigo. What reasons would the planter give to persuade the peasant? What problem would the peasant point out, enact their conversation. Tribals, Tikus, and the vision of a golden age. In 1895, a man named Bursa was seen roaming the forest and villages of Chortanaku in Bihar. People said he had miraculous powers. He could cure all diseases and multiply rain. Birsa himself declared that God had appointed him to save his people from trouble, free them from the slavery of dikus or outsiders. Soon thousands began following Birsa, believing that he was Bhagwan or God and had come to solve all their problems. Bursa was born in a family of Mundas, a tribal group that lived in Chotanagpur. But his followers included over tribals of the region, Sandals and Orons. All of them in different ways were unhappy with the changes they were experiencing and the problems they were facing under British rule. Their familiar ways of life seemed to be disappearing. Their livelihoods were under threat, and their religion appeared to be in danger. What problems did Bursa set out to resolve? Who were the outsiders being referred to as Dikus? 
and how did they enslave the people of the region what was happening to the tribal people under the british how did their lives change these are some of the questions you will read about in this chapter you have read about tribal societies last year most tribes had customs and rituals that were very different from those laid down by brahmanas these societies also did not have the sharp social divisions that were characteristics of caste societies all those who belonged to the same tribe thought of themselves as sharing common ties of kinship however this did not mean that there were no social and economic differences within tribes figure 1 women of the dongria kanta tribe in orissa wade through the river on the way to the market hello a field left and cultivated for a while so that the soil recovers fertility sal a tree mahua a flower that is eaten or used to make alcohol figure 2 dongria kantha women in orissa take home pandanus leaves from the forest to make plates how did tribal groups live by the 19th century tribal people in different parts of india were involved in a variety of activities some were jhum cultivators some of them practiced jhum cultivation that is shifting cultivation this was done on small patches of land mostly in forest the cultivators cut the tree pots tree tops to allow sunlight to reach the ground and burned the vegetation on the land to clear it for cultivation they spread the ash from the firing which contained potash to fertilize the soil they used the axe to cut trees and the hoe to scratch the soil in order to prepare it for cultivation they broadcast the seeds that is scattered the seeds on the field instead of plowing the land and sowing the seeds once the crop was ready and harvested they moved to another field a field that had been cultivated once was left fallow for several years shifting cultivators were found in the hilly and forested tracts of north east and central india the lives of these tribes people depended on free movement within forest and on being able to use the land and forest for growing their crops 
that is the only way they could practice shifty cultivation somewhere hunters and gatherers in many regions tribal groups lived by hunting animals and gathering forest produce this of forest as essential for survival the cones were such a community living in the forest of odisha they regularly went out on collective hunts and then divided the meat amongst themselves they ate fruits and roots collected from the forest and cooked food with the oil they extracted from the seeds of the sai and mahua they used many forest shrubs and herbs for medicinal purposes and sold forest produce in the local markets the local weavers and leather workers turned to the cones even when their needed supplies of kusum and balash flowers to color their clothes and leather from where did these forest people get their supplies of rice and other grains at times they exchanged goods getting what they needed in return for their valuable forest produce at other times they brought goods with the small amount of earnings they had some of them did all odd jobs in the villages carrying loads or building roads while others labored in the fields of peasants and farmers when supplies of forest produce shrank tribal people had to increasingly wander around in search of work but many of them like the Baigas of Central India were reluctant to do work for others. The Baigas saw themselves as people of the forest who could only live on the produce of the forest. It was below the dignity of the of a Baiga to become a laborer. Tribal groups often needed to buy and sell in order to be able to get the goods that were not produced within the locality this led to the dependence on traders and money lenders traders came around with the things for sale and sold the goods at high prices money lenders gave loans with which the tribes met their cash needs adding to what they earned but the interest charged on the loans was usually very high so for the tribals market and commerce often meant debt and poverty they therefore came to see the money lender and the trader as evil outsiders
some herded animals many tribal groups lived by herding and rearing animals they were pastoralists who moved with their herds of cattle or sheep according to the seasons when the grass in one place was exhausted they moved to another area the one which was of the punjabi hills and the lebadis of andhra pradesh were cattle herders the gadis of kullu were shepherds and the bakarwals of kashmir reared goats you will read more about them in your history book next year a time to hunt a time to sow a time to move to a new field source one have you ever noticed that the people living in different types of societies do not share the same notion of work and time the lives of shifting cultivators and hunters in different regions were regulated by a calendar and division of tasks for men and women warrior elven a british anthropologist who lived among the baigas and the cones of central india for many years in the 1930s and 1940s gives us a picture of what this calendar and division of task was like he writes in chaith women went to clearing to cut stalks that were already ripped men cut large trees and go for their ritual hunt the hunt began at a full moon from the east traps of bamboo were used for hunting the women gathered fruits like a sago tamarind and mushroom baiga women can only gather roots or kanda and mahua seeds of all the adivasis in central india the baigas were known as the best hunters in baisak in base the firing of the forest took place the women gathered and bound wood to burn men continued to hunt but nearer their villages in cheth sowing took place and the hunting still went on from asad to badon the men worked in the fields in core the first fruits of beans were ripened and in kartik kutki became ripe in akan every crop was ready and in pas winnowing took place pas was also the time for dances and marriage in mark shifts were made to new bivouacs and hunting gathering was the main subsistence activity the cycle described above took place in the first year in the second year there was 
more time for hunting as only a few crops are to be sown in manga sheds were made to new bivouacs and the hunting gathering was the main subsistence activity the cycle described took place in the first year in the second year there was more time for hunting as only a few crops were to be sown and harvested but since there was enough food the men lived in the bivouacs it was only in the third year that the diet had to be supplemented with the forest products adapted from warrior alvin baker 1939 and alvin's unpublished notes figure 4 sandal girl carrying firewood bihar 1946 children go with their mothers to the forest to gather forest produce activity look carefully at the task that beggar women and men did do you see any pattern that what were the differences in the types of work that they were expected to perform some took to settled cultivation bivar a term used in madhya pradesh for shifting cultivation even before the 19th century many from within the tribal groups had begun settling down and cultivating their fields in one place year after year instead of moving from place to place they began to use the plow and gradually got rights over the land they lived in many cases like the mundas of chatanagpur the land belonged to the clan as a whole all members of the clan were regarded as descendants british officials saw little tribal groups settled tribal groups like the gonds and santals as more civilized than hunter gatherers or shifting cultivators those who lived in the forest were considered to be wild and savage they needed to be settled and civilized how did colonial rule affect tribal lives the lives of the tribal groups changed during the british rule let us see what these changes were what happened to tribal chiefs before the arrival of the british in many areas the tribal chiefs were important people they enjoyed a certain amount of economic power and had the right to administer and control their territories in some places they had their own police and decided on a local rule of land and forest management under british rule the functions and the powers of the tribal chiefs changed considerably they were allowed to keep their land titles 
over a cluster of villages and rent out lands but they lost much of their administrative power and they had earlier enjoyed almost amongst their people and were unable to fulfill their traditional functions figure 5 a log house being built in a village of the nishi tribes of the northeast the entire village helps when log huts are built what happened to the shifting cultivators the british were uncomfortable with the groups who moved about and did not have a fixed home they wanted tribal groups to settle down and become peasant cultivators settled peasants were easier to control and administer than people who were always on the move the british also wanted a regular revenue source for the state so they introduced land settlements that is they measured the land defined the rights of each individual to that land and fixed the revenue demands for the state some peasants were declared land owners others tenants as we have seen chapter 2 the tenants were to pay rent to the landowner who in turn paid revenue to the state figure 6 bill women cultivating in a forest in gujarat shifting cultivations continues in many forest areas of gujarat you can see the trees how how been cut out and land cleared to create patches for cultivation the british efforts to settle zoom cultivators was not very successful settled plow cultivation is not easy in areas where water is scarce and the soil is dry in fact zoom cultivators who took to plow cultivation often suffered since their field did not produce good yields so the jew cultivators in north india northeast india insisted on continuing with their traditional practice facing widespread protest the british had to ultimately allow them the right to carry on shifting cultivation in some parts of the forest figure 7 tribal workers in a rice field in andhra pradesh note the difference between rice cultivation in the flat plains in factories note the difference between the cultivation in the flat plains and in the forest forest laws and their impact the life of tribal groups as you have seen was directly connected to the forest so changes in the forest laws had a considerable effect on tribal lives 
the british extended their control over all forest and declared that forest were state property some forest were classified as reserved forest for they produced timber which the british wanted in these forests people were not allowed to move freely practice jhum cultivation the british extended their control over the forest and declared that the forest were state property some forests were classified as reserved forest for they produced timber which the british wanted in this forest people were not allowed to move freely practice jhum cultivation collect fruits or hunt animals how were jhum cultivators to survive in such a situation many were therefore forced to move to other areas in search of work and livelihood but once the british stopped the tribal people from living inside forest they faced a problem from where would the forest department get its labor to cut trees for railway sleepers and to transport logs colonial officials came up with the solution they decided that they would give jhum cultivators small patches of land in the forest and allow them to cultivate these on the condition that those who lived in the villages would have to provide labor to the forest department and took look after the forest so in many regions the forest departments forest department established forest villages to ensure a regular supply of cheap labor sleeper the horizontal planks of wood on which railway lines are laid source to in this land of the english how hard it is to live in the 1930s warrior elvin visited the land of the beggars a tribal group in central india he wanted to know about them their customs and practices their art and folklore he recorded many songs that lamented the hard times the beggars were having under the british rule in this land of the english how hard it is to live how hard it is to live in the villages sits the landlord in the gates sits the kotwar in the garden sits the patwari in the field sits the government in this land of the living of the english in in this land of the english how hard it is to live to pay cattle tax we have to sell cow to pay forest tax we have to sell buffalo to pay land tax we have to sell bullock how are we to get our food in this land of english quoted in warrior elvin and shamrao wari songs of the michael page number 316 we 
Many tribal groups reacted against the colonial forest laws. They disobeyed the new rules, continued with the practices that were declared illegal, and at times rose in open rebellion. Such was the revolt of Songram Salma in 1906 in Assam and the forest Satyagriha of the 1930s in the central provinces. The problem the trade. During the 19th century, tribal groups found that traders and moneylenders were coming into the forest more often, wanting to buy forest produce, offering cash loans and asking them to work for wages. It took tribal groups some time to understand the consequences of what was happening. Let us consider the case of the silk growers. In the 18th century, Indian silk was in demand in European markets. The fine qualities, quality of Indian silk was slightly, highly valued and exports from India increased rapidly. As the market expanded, East India Company officials tried to encourage silk production to meet the growing demand. Azaribag in present-day Jharkhand was an area where the Santaras reared cocoons. The traders dealing in silk The traders dealing in silk sent in their agents who gave loans to the tribal people and collected the cocoons. The growers were rapid, paid roughly to 4 rupees for a thousand cocoons. These were then exported to Bhagwan or Gaya where they were sold at five times the price. The middlemen so called because they arranged deals between the exporters and silk growers made huge profits. The silk growers earned very little. Understandably, many tribal groups saw the market and the traders as their main enemies. Search for work The plight of the tribals who wanted to go, for, go far away from their homes in search of work was even worse. From the late 19th century, 10 plantations started coming up and mining became an important industry. Tribals were recruited in large numbers to work the tea plantations of Assam and the coal mines of Jharkhand. They were recruited through contractors who paid them miserably low wages and prevented them from returning home. Figure 8 A. Godara women weaving. Figure 9 A. Hachan woman weaving a mat. For women, domestic work was not confined to the home. They carried their babies with them to the fields and the factories. Figure 10 
കോൾ മൈനേഴ്സ് ഓഫ് ബീഹാർ ൾസ് in india activity find out whether the conditions of work in the mines have changed now check how many people die in mines every year and what are the reasons for their death a closer look Through the 19th and 20th centuries, tribal groups in different parts of the country rebelled against the changes in law, the restrictions on their practices, the new taxes they had to pay, and the exploitation by traders and moneylenders. The courts rebelled in 1831-32, Samdars rose and revolted in 1855, the Basta rebellion in central India. broke out in 1910 and the warly revolt in Maharashtra in 1940 the moment that bursa led was one such moment source 3 blood trickles from my shoulders the songs the mundas sang bemoaned their misery alas under the drudgery of forced labor blood trickles from my shoulders day and night the emissary from the samaders annoys and irritates me day and night i groan alas this is my condition i do not have a home where shall i get happiness alas ks Vaishnava worshippers of Vishnu Birsa Munda Birsa was born in the mid-1870s, the son of a poor father. He grew up around the forest of Bohonda, grazing sheep, playing the flute, and dancing in the local Akhara. Forced by poverty, his father had to move from place to place looking for work. As an adolescent, Birsa heard tales of Munda uprisings of the past and saw the sirdars, leaders of the community, urging the people to revolt. They talked of a golden age when the Mundas had been free of the oppression of the Kus and said there would be a time when the ancestral right of the community would be restored. They saw themselves as the descendants of the original settlers of the region, fighting for their lands. Mungkuki Larai, remaining, reminding people of the need to win back their kingdom. Bursa went to the local missionary school and listened to the sermons of missionaries. There too he heard it said that it was possible for the Mundas to attain the kingdom of heaven. 
and to regain their lost rights. This would be possible if they become good Christians and gave up their bad practices. Later, Brissa also spent some time in the company of the prominent Vaishnava field preacher. He wore the sacred thread and began to value the importance of purity and piety. Bursa was deeply influenced by many of the ideas came in touch with him in his growing up years. His movement was aimed at reforming tribal society. He urged the Mundas to give up drinking liquor, clean their village, and stop believing in witchcraft and sorcery. But we must remember that Bursa also turned against missionaries and Hindu landlords. He saw them as outside forces that were ruining the Munda way of life. In 19, 1895, Bursa urged his followers to recover their glorious past. He talked of a golden age in the past. His movement was aimed at reforming tribal society. He urged the Mundas to give up drinking liquor. In 1895, Brissa urged his followers to recover their glorious past. He talked of a golden age in the past, a Shayug, the age of truth, Satyug, Satyug. When Mundas lived a good life, constructed embankments, tapped natural springs, planted trees and orchards, practiced cultivation in, uh, to earn their living. They did not kill their brethren and relatives. They lived honestly. Verso also wanted people to once again work in their own land, settle down and cultivate their fields. What worried British officials most was the political aim of the Bursa movement, for it wanted to drive out missionaries, moneylenders, Hindu landlords, and the government, and set up a Munda Raj with the Bursa at its head. The movement identified all these forces as the cause of the misery of the Mundas were suffering. The land policies of the British were destroyed their traditional land system. Hindu landlords and moneylenders were taking over their land, and missionaries were criticizing their traditional culture. As the movement spread, the British officials decided to act. They arrested Bursa in 1895, convicted him on charges of rioting, and jailed him for two years. 
When Bursa was released in 1897, he began touring the villages to gather support. He used traditional symbols and languages to roast people, ordaining to destroy Ravana, the Goths, and the Europeans, and established a kingdom under his leadership. Bursa's followers began targeting the symbols of They attacked police stations and churches and raided the property of the moneylenders and zamindars. They raised the white flag as a symbol of Bursa Raj. In 1900, Bursa died of cholera and the movement faded out. However, the movement was significant in at least two ways. First, it forced the colonial government to introduce laws so that the land of the tribes could not be easily taken over by Dikus. Second, it showed once again that the tribal people had the capacity to protest against injustice and express their anger against colonial people. They did this in their own specific way, inventing their own rituals and symbols of struggle. Elsewhere, why do we need cash? There are many reasons why tribal and other social groups often do not wish to produce for the market. This tribal song from Papua New Guinea gives us a glimpse of how the tribals were viewed in the market. We say cash is unsatisfactory trash. It won't keep off rain and it gives me pain. So why should I work? my guts from coconut trees for these government muds. Cash cropping is all very well if you have got something to sell. But tell me sir why? If there if there is nothing to buy, should I bother? Adapted from song hotend in home. Song quoted in Kong, Clark and Haswell Eds, The Economy of Subsistence Agriculture, 1970s. Let's imagine, imagine you are a drone cultivator living in a forest village in the 19th century. You have just been told that the land you were born on no longer belongs to you. In a meeting with the British officials, you try to explain the kinds of problems you face. What would you say? When people rebel 
Many people, Rubel 1857 Live with a smile Smiling is considered as a quality that can win a person many friends help to lighten problems and spread a lot of happiness around the people who treat others with a smile face may not be forgotten from their hearts everyone wants to be accepted in someone's heart so we all should practice to have a smiling face whenever we meet someone Smiling can also be called a beautiful art. If it is not properly used, circumstances can become worse. When we smile at someone, we need to have the smile in our hearts too. If the smile doesn't come from the heart, it has no value. When a person feels the smile within, the face lights up like the glowing sun. and makes the other person automatically smile back the genuine smile is considered as the rays of the rising sun at dawn therefore we should never smile at a person by having negative thoughts inside as we all are children we need to practice the habit of smiling as the part of our daily dressing We all decorate our body with this beautiful and expensive dresses to feel good and look good. There is nothing better than a smile to make a person look and feel good. So we should make it a part of our daily activities. Keep a smile ready in your heart and use it as often as possible. to brighten up yourself and things around everyone can exchange a smile whenever they meet each other smiling doesn't cost anything in a world where everyone likes to speak about money a smile is both a no cost and a beautiful way of giving joy to others we meet Many people who wait for others to smile before deciding whether or not they should return the smile they think that they should let others smile first if others do then they will at this point we all need to think of why should we let someone else to decide when we should smile we should become the boss of our smiling then we can make this world a place of peace and happiness we all need to know how to smile and when to smile a smile in the wrong place can cause enemies without our being aware of it so we should be very careful when we smile at someone 
we all live in this world for a little time so we need to live in this world with happiness this happiness cannot exist by itself we all should become the makers of happiness we can find the happiness in making others happy in many more ways than other beings can we can begin by gifting smiles to everyone the smile is a beautiful gift which we can share with everyone it is said to be a double blessing because it makes happy both the person who smiles and the person who receives the smile as we are all children we need to realize the value of the smile let us have a smiling face and make the world to shine from the rays of our smiles